It's Thursday, October 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Facebook papers are out, and it's shedding more light on how executives there weighed various trade-offs between their bottom line and impacts on public safety. In one instance, it took them years to implement a fix for an algorithm that was feeding people angry, emotional content filled with misinformation. If you used the angry emoji on a post instead of the like button, it carried more weight, and then they would feed you more of the same, despite the signal that you did not like it. Jeremy Merrill, data reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, despite all the rain that dropped in the West recently, it wasn't enough to pull it out of a drought. Water continues to be scarce, getting more expensive, and it's leading places like California to invest in more water treatment facilities. Recycled wastewater gets a bad rap because of where it's coming from, but the filtration technology being used now produces water so clean, it would actually harm you if minerals weren't put back in. Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired, joins us for why people should drink more recycled wastewater. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Because engagement-based ranking does two things. One, it prioritizes and amplifies divisive, polarizing, extreme content. And two, it concentrates it. And so if Facebook comes back and says, only a tiny sliver of content on our platform is hate, or only a tiny sliver is violence, one, they can't detect it very well, so I don't know if I trust those numbers. But two, it gets hyper-concentrated in, you know, 5% of the population. And you only need 3% of the population on the streets to have a revolution. And that's dangerous. Joining us now is Jeremy Merrill, data reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk a little bit about the Facebook papers. We're learning a lot more about kind of how things were working in the background at Facebook. You know, a lot of different things, uh, internal dialogues between between workers and uh, how things were being portrayed out there. One of the articles that you wrote about was about this, uh, these anger emojis, these new set of emojis that popped up in 2017 that let people react to comments beyond the, the, uh, just the like button. Um, you know, you can laugh at something, heart something, uh, you know, there's like a sad emoji or a sorry emoji, I think they called it. Uh, and then the, the angry emoji also, but what happened with all of this is, uh, Things were weighted differently, and these emojis were weighted in such a way that it started promoting a lot of misinformation, a lot of things that would give you more of an emotional response. And uh, at the time, they thought that this was the way to go, but it just kind of led to all sorts of mishaps, and it took them a long time to really uh, remedy that as well. So, Jeremy, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with it? That's exactly right. So what we're talking about here is whenever you go to Facebook.com or open the Facebook app on your phone, you get your newsfeed, right? And just, just imagine all of the possible things that Facebook could show you at the very top. It could be posts from your friends a couple of days ago. It could be a baby picture from someone you rode the school bus with in high school 15 years ago. It could be posts from a news organization or a buy nothing group in your town. There's all sorts of things, and Facebook has to make a decision of what should go first and what should go second and what should go, you know, three thousandths <laughs> right. such that you'll never see it. And that algorithm is sort of one of the secret sauces that, that keeps people, that keeps Facebook um, sort of alive. And broadly speaking, um, there are two sets of things that make up that algorithm. One is a really complicated, really mathy, sort of what you think of when you think of an algorithm, it's super complicated. It's meant to predict what's the likelihood 
that if we show this post to Jeremy, what's the likelihood that he's going to click like? What's the likelihood that he's going to click angry? What's the likelihood that he's going to write a comment? Um, so that's the first part are all those predictions. And the second part is really simple. It's just numbers that are picked by human beings who work at Facebook. And those numbers are how important relatively those different predictions are. And when Facebook launched a, a, a new way of ranking your newsfeed, a new way of picking what stuff shows up first, those weights were that a like is worth one point. These reaction emojis, including angry, but also all the other ones, were worth five points. And comments were worth between 15 and 30 points. And there's some other, a couple other ingredients as well. But sort of the minute that this launched, um, someone from Facebook wrote on their internal message board and said, you know, that they were worried that posts that make people react with the angry emoji might inadvertently open the door to spam, abuse, clickbait. And somebody else said, you know, eh, it's possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes natural sense, right? Something that angers you, mm -hmm. something that you're like, well, you know, that's full of crap. You know, I'm going to anger emoji that hopefully you don't get any more of it. But it was actually the opposite because they weighted it so much more than just a like or whatever. Uh, the the algorithm would actually just serve you up more. And and in that sense, you know, uh, the worst of the platform started uh, started uh, shining through even more for people's news feeds. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. If the algorithm learns that you're going to react in a way that's worth five points, then it's going to show you more stuff like that because that's what it considers Facebook's term was meaningful social interaction. They consider that to be a meaningful social interaction, so they're going to try to do more of it. But gradually, um, evidence started building up. People found that things that sparked a lot of angry, angry reactions were disproportionately misinformation, what Facebook calls toxicity, uh, as well as low-quality news. And people started proposing, hey, maybe this isn't a great idea to, to count the anger emoji so high and right. to count it as exactly the same as these other, these other emojis like love or care. Yeah, and that's part of what's, yeah. that's part of what's interesting about uh, the Facebook papers and what we're kind of learning about how Facebook was operating is that while these experiments were going on, right, how the different weights and how to serve up the algorithm best to people, the internal conversations from employees calling some of it out saying, hey, this is a problem. This is becoming a problem. This problem is too big and, uh, you know, really not being able to remedy it right away. Uh, that's one of the other interesting aspects about it because that's part of what it is. We're, we're seeing these internal dialogues happening behind the scenes now. Right. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, to, to be fair to Facebook, um, in some cases, people didn't have evidence yet. It was just a suspicion, sort of an instinct. Hey, ranking anger so highly doesn't seem like a great idea. Or it would be kind of weird um, to make distinctions between different kinds of emotions. They felt kind of uncomfortable with that, as well as raising the possibility that, stuff that makes people angry, angry might be important for social change. And, um, but, you know, eventually Facebook did end up cutting the weight of this emoji all the way down to zero. They ended up making distinctions between emotions. Um, so for a while, love and care were worth double alike and stuff that made, made you go, ha ha, uh, or wow, was only worth the same as alike. So to their credit, they did end up making this fix eventually. But it, it, it was the case that they set these without, they set the weights all to five times alike without looking into what would happen. 
yeah. and then once they've made that choice, they stuck with it for a couple of years until the weight of the evidence was so much that they finally had to act. Yeah, and sticking with it too, right? I mean, you know, it's a it's a new feature on the website, so it makes sense that they want to point people to it as much as possible. So that was part of the problem too, is that uh, why they didn't act so quickly is that you know they wanted people to start using that new feature, um, thinking you know it was going to be that next great thing for them, uh, and so that posed the problem too. And and as you mentioned, once they um, did kind of start uh, reducing the weights of these things. They found that, uh, you know, in other parts of the algorithm also, you know, when a post would get too popular or something and they would demote certain things, even then it was it was tough because, uh, you know, there was no cap on how many points, let's say, a post could get. So, um, you know, even if you demote something, I mean, it still could have a, a billion points. Right. Uh, and it could be at the top of everybody's newsfeed. That's exactly right. It's really difficult for us to understand how all the sort of weird math that goes into figuring out what goes to the top of your newsfeed. And some of the documents show that even these people with access to a lot of resources at Facebook and a lot of people who can understand it uh, ostensibly, even they didn't really understand how the algorithm worked. And they were finding that, you know, the scores for the things that would appear at the top of your newsfeed usually are about a hundred or sorry, about in the hundreds, a couple hundred, but some, some of the posts, could get scores in the millions or up to a billion. And what, what you've got is a sort of battle between uh, the integrity teams who are the ones tasked with finding stuff that's probably bad and trying to push it down in people's feeds so it doesn't go viral. And the growth teams who are tasked with getting people to use Facebook. And so you sort of had this battle where the growth team was giving these things these humongous scores. Right but the integrity team was limited. And like the best that they could do is like cut it, the score in half. So if you, you know, the post number one has, you know, about 5 million as its score and post number two has 800. You're trying to push post number one down because it's probably garbage. And all you can do is divide 5 million in half. Well, two and a half million is still huge. So they found that they had this trouble of actually making their principled ways of trying to make the platform safer and, um, more enjoyable for people, they weren't able to work because the math was so complicated. Yeah, they were always fighting that losing battle. And, and you know, it, it's it's interesting, you know, to the point, right? It's why is Facebook serving up so much crap? Why is it serving up so much anger and divisiveness? And this is exactly why. These, the different weights that were put on things and, and the math was so complicated, it was hard to uh, go back and, and fix it retroactively. So, you know, we're learning a lot from these Facebook papers um, you know, cho Facebook choosing maximum engagement over user safety, uh, dropping the ball in different areas. So we'll keep finding out more and uh, and bring it all to you. Jeremy Merrill, data reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. The next step of the process is called aeration. In the aeration process, we pump hot air into the water, which activates special microbes that help clean the water for us. Then you'll see, we let the water settle out again, and the microbes sink to the bottom. Joining us now is Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Matt. And thanks for having me. Let's talk about water, specifically in the American West. It's pretty tough to get water in uh, large parts of Southern California. Obviously, 
there's plenty of it, but the way we get our water in Southern California oftentimes comes from Northern California. It'll come from the Colorado River and, you know, we're facing droughts all over the place. So there's a lot of different ways that uh, municipalities are thinking about obtaining water. And in San Diego, they have the North City Water Reclamation Plant where they take wastewater, treat it, and the water comes out so pure it's almost too pure to drink, which was the interesting tagline for your article there. Matt, tell us a little bit about the filtration uh, process and and then the water itself, uh, you know, th- that it's so pure. Sure. So the water comes to this, this treatment plant, um, not, you know, totally awful. It has been treated a little bit before um, being pumped here. Uh, traditionally, you'd actually pump that water then out to the ocean, Um when you're done with that wastewater, uh, we have no more use for it. But what this plant is actually doing is it's putting this through another much more rigorous process for filtration. So, uh, first of all, they hit it with ozone, which um, really just bakes away any microbes like bacteria and viruses. Uh, then they pass it through a number of filters that are actually so fine that they only let through the molecules of water. And, that, you know, when you and I are drinking water, we're actually drinking a good amount of uh, minerals and other elements, uh, but this is, is just pure H2O. And actually, as you say, if you drank it, it'd be very, very bad for your body because that water uh, acts like a sponge. It wants to absorb minerals and it would absorb the minerals in your body. Uh, you'd get very sick. So what they do is they actually have to add those minerals back into this water when they're done filtering it. And then that water would go out to households. It's not happening yet. This is a, a pilot project that I visited for the story, but Across the street from this reclamation plant, they are building a full-scale facility that will provide 30 million gallons a day of recycled water like this, which is quite a significant amount for a, a place like San Diego. So, yeah, what they're doing is, as you mentioned, there have been historical sources, the Colorado River in, in Northern California for uh, water sent to Southern California. But as the climate warms, as water becomes more scarce, they're really just trying to explore these technologies that provide uh, really an impenetrable supply of water. If you're using water, you can reuse it. You have more water. You're not pumping it out to sea. So it's a, it's a really interesting technology. It's expensive still, but it, it is taking off, particularly yeah. in the American West, which is which is really warming and drying out. Okay, let's talk about the ick factor, I guess you can call it, right? When you're hearing <laughs> wastewater, we're talking about things like sinks, showers, toilets, <laughs> your washing machine. Obviously, we detailed how pure the water comes out once it's been treated. But, you know, it's always kind of you're thinking nobody really wants that water. Nobody wants to use it for a variety of reasons, Whether whatever, if you're drinking it, bathing in it, you know, it's kind of has this uh, bad connotation to it. It does. And it's, uh, you know, it has been perfectly safe in this technology has been around for 50 years. So um, it, there is an X factor that the public policy people have to think about, but it is water that is passing with flying colors, any sort of safety test. It's meeting all federal and state standards. Uh, again, it comes out so pure uh, that it would hurt you if you drank it, if, if there wasn't that extra treatment step at the facility. So, you know, it's also important to note that if you are downriver of another municipality, so like in the Colorado River, San Diego is at the very end of the line there. Um, but when a state like New Mexico or Arizona takes out water from the Colorado River, they use it, treat it, and put it back in the Colorado River. So you are more than likely, if you're in Southern California, 
drinking treated wastewater. But again, these technologies have gotten to the point, these membranes are in particular are so good, so fine that they're that they're creating perfectly safe water, again, meeting all these safety standards. It's nothing to worry about. But it is really something that I think a lot of folks in the American West are, are going to have to come to terms with. We are going to be recycling more water, and necessarily so, as, as the climate crisis worsens. You noted in the article that you've tried some of this treated water before. I mean, I'm sure it tasted pretty clean, but, you know, uh, how did it taste? What was your impression of it? It tasted like water. I didn't drop dead uh, on the spot, which is nice. Uh, I didn't get sick after either. Uh, I was actually, when I was touring this facility for uh, the, the new story here, the tap wasn't working for some reason, so I wasn't able to try it there. But I have actually tried it at the Hyperion plant in, um, in Los Angeles, and it, was, it tasted perfectly good. It's weird because that, you know, if they didn't put those minerals and elements back in, it would taste probably pretty bizarre, but it tastes like water as we know, which of course varies from, you know, river to river. Like right. Part of the conversation obviously is how bad getting water as a resource is in these places, right? We're looking to diversify how we get water because it's becoming more expensive. And, you know, as we've been talking about through climate change and drought, a lot scarcer, for a long time in Southern California, we've always uh, heard about desalination plants also. So that's it would be taking like ocean water and taking out all that stuff so that we can uh, treat it and use that. It really is diversification in almost the exact sense that you would diversify a stock portfolio. So if you own one stock and that stock tanks, you're out a lot of money. But if you own 50 stocks or whatever, one of them tanks, you are hedging your bets, bets with those other stocks, uh, adding bonds perhaps as well. And this is something that water policy experts really harp on, is that to create a good supply of water for a municipality, you need to diversify your sources. If you're relying entirely on the Colorado River, and the Colorado River is already in extreme drought and will probably continue to be so, um, you're going to be in trouble with your supply. So as you mentioned, desalination is, is a big part of this. Uh, San Diego has actually been doing that for years, um, getting, I think, several million gallons of, of drinkable water from the ocean each day. It, it's, uh, it, it really is about kind of tapping into these technologies as well. The membranes, as I have mentioned, uh, work the same in desalination. It's just about forcing water through these things and filtering out everything but the, the molecules of the water. The trouble there is it is expensive to run these plants. It takes a lot of energy to force that water at high pressure through these membranes, but it is really an iterative technology. Scientists are continuously working on better membrane technology, so it will get cheaper and cheaper. Um, and really, I, I can pretty much guarantee that you will see more and more wastewater recycling facilities popping up throughout the American West. Yeah, it's just an interesting look as we've been talking about just the different ways to get that water as it becomes more of a scarce resource. And you noted in the article, too, there's a lot of bills floating around through Congress to provide funding for more of these types of plants. They haven't made it out of committee or become reality just yet, but this uh, seems to be where the trend could be going. And, uh, and just an interesting look, you know, it comes out clean, but you got to get over knowing that it was uh, it started off as wastewater. Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.